All right, let's go ahead and open our Bibles to the book of Exodus. If you're not super familiar with the scriptures, Exodus is the second book in the Bible. We're going to be in chapter 3 this morning. The chapter numbers are the big numbers, and the verse numbers are the small numbers. We're going to be going from Exodus chapter 3 into Exodus chapter 4, as our sister so masterfully read for us this morning. Thank you, Jenny. When we study history, it can tend to feel inevitable that things would turn out the way that they did. Of course, Lincoln would free the slaves and save the nation. Of course, Hitler would start a two-front war and overextend his resources, thus leading to the destruction of the Third Reich. Of course, the colonies would gain their independence from Britain and freedom would ring out from sea to shining sea. But when we study the unfolding drama of history with a more discerning eye, we see that the story, as we have received it, as it is written, was actually far from inevitable. Lincoln could have given up on politics after his third failed election. Hitler could have been content with his military victories after the occupation of France. The French could have stayed out of the Revolutionary War altogether, leaving the colonies to their certain defeat at the hands of the British. Thousands of years before Hitler or Lincoln or Washington, the life of Moses, as it has come down to us today, seems inevitable. Of course, we say, of course, Moses would defeat Pharaoh and lead God's people through the Red Sea and deliver them to the promised land. It could not have happened any other way. But of course, that's not true. The story could have played out very differently at several points along the path, critical points along the path. Moses' parents could have chosen not to have children in the midst of a very hostile ethnic genocide in Egypt. Moses could have died in the basket that his mother released into the river of death. Moses could have chosen a life of comfort over justice and just remained a a, a peaceful prince in Pharaoh's palace. That's four Ps in one sentence. Wow. You get the picture. Now, if you've been with us for the last month, you've been tracking the story of how Moses came to be the redeemer of Israel. It started with his birth. Moses survived the genocide. Then two weeks ago, We saw how Moses was being prepared for the ministry through all these uh, strange and difficult providential circumstances. And in today's sermon, we're going to see Moses' call into ministry and how Moses himself seemed to be the one trying to derail the history of his own call, of his own. He tried to ruin his own story. I have five points for you this morning, note takers. Here they are. The God who, ellipses, calls, remembers, sins, goes, and is. The God who calls, the God who remembers, the God who sins, the God who goes, and the God who is. Let me pray one more time before we get into point one. Lord, we, we pray one more time because... We, we just know that we need your help. I need your help to speak. 
Your people need your help to not just merely listen, but to actually hear. Help us to not be like those who were rebuked by your son Jesus during his earthly ministry, those who had ears but could not hear. May the seed of your word fall on well-tilled soil. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Point number one, the God who calls. So as we move into the beginning of the year, many of us are trying to decide which Bible reading plan that we're going to start, probably on January 1st, and then give up sometime around in March. Right? Uh, but, now see, that was supposed to be a joke. Now, <laughs> cuts a little too close to the bone, though, doesn't it? Leviticus hits us all like a truck. Now, if you've ever managed to read through the Bible in a year, which I would encourage you to do, even if you may end up giving up, it's still good to try. I actually think the key is to try to do it quicker than a year. It's hard to maintain discipline for a whole year. Reading the Bible in 30, 60, or 90 days is actually really incredible. I'd encourage you to give it a try. But a couple of years ago, as I was doing my yearly Bible journey, uh, something stuck out to me. And this happens when you read the Bible so frequently. You begin to notice themes that you just didn't notice before. They've always been there, but you just never saw them. And one of the themes that I noticed a few years ago was how all these really important things in the Bible, they happen on mountaintops. So, for example, many commentators believe that the Garden of Eden was actually on top of a mountain. And they actually, I think, have some pretty uh, persuasive arguments for why that is. I'm not going to get into it this morning. Later in Genesis, after Noah is delivered from the flood, he meets with God. God reestablishes his covenant with him on top of a mountain. Still later in Genesis, uh, when God spares the life of Abraham's only son, or the son of promise, on top of the mountain, uh, he does it, well, on top of a mountain. And then there's the Exodus. As soon as you get into Exodus, things start happening on mountaintops. Later in the book of Exodus, God is going to give Moses the law. Do you know where he's going to give it to him? On top of a mountain. That's right. But long before he gives the law, he calls Moses into ministry and he does it, you guessed it, on top of a mountain. So in verse 1, we find Moses tending the sheep of his father-in-law, not down in a valley, but on top of a mountain. And when he is on top of that mountain, he encounters something very strange. He encounters a burning bush. So there are three things I want us to see about this burning bush encounter. First, I want you to see the angel of the Lord. Most of us, if we saw a bush fire, would want to go and take a closer look. But the thing that interests the thing that interested Moses about the bushfire that he saw while he was out tending the sheep was that as the bush was burning, it was not being consumed. And that's fascinating. We could spend 30 minutes talking about that. But that's not even the most interesting thing about this encounter. The most interesting thing about this encounter is that in the burning bush, there was an angel of the Lord. Which leads us to the question, who is the angel of the Lord? And I think one of the cues is seen in a, in a quick cross-reference. You can look in your, in your Bibles in verse 2. In verse 2, we read that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush. But then in verse 6, we're told that Moses turned his face away from the bush. Why? Because he was afraid to look at God. Look at verse 6. 
And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, and he was afraid to look at God. So what's going on here? Well, I'm just going to super simplify this for you. All throughout the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is the means by which God communicates his, his holy presence to an unholy people. We know from the rest of scripture that God cannot reveal himself in the fullness of his holy glory to sinful mankind because if he did, they would be destroyed. That's what it means to be sinful. Sinners cannot be in the presence of a holy and righteous God without being utterly destroyed. So whenever God chooses to reveal himself to people, he does so through this angel of the Lord presence. Now, there's a lot more that could be said about this angel of the Lord. Was the angel of the Lord a theophany or a Christophany? And you're like, what is an ophany, right? Was it the pre-incarnate Jesus appearing to his people? Many good questions. I'd encourage you to talk about that over lunch. Now, the second thing I want you to see about this burning bush has to do with its significance in the larger story of Exodus. Uh, We would do well to note that this is the first explicit appearance of the Lord in the book of Exodus. As we've we've been working through the story, maybe you haven't noticed, but everything about God has been implied. It's kind of like when you read the book of Esther, right? Everything that's happening in the book of Esther is being providentially planned and worked by God, but God is never explicitly pointed out. The reader is simply expected to understand that God is at work. The same thing is true basically for the first couple of chapters of Exodus. It was God who saved baby Moses. It was God who moved the heart of the princess. It was God who did this and that. But then we get to chapter 3 and God actually shows up. God has a face-to-face, as it were, encounter with Moses. Moses encounters the one who's been protecting him and preparing him for the last 80 years. So this is a very significant event in the book of Exodus. Third, I want us to take note of the theme of holiness in this event. The first thing that Moses learns about God, Moses is going to learn a lot about the God of his forefathers, but the very first thing he learns in this encounter is that God is holy. How does he learn? Well, God reveals that aspect of his own nature and character. As Moses approaches the, bu- the bush at God's behest, God says, do not come near. Why? Because God is holy. And God's holy presence has made the entire area in which they are standing sacrosanct, sacred, holy. Now, endless ink has been spilled about the command for Moses to remove his sandals. I don't actually think it's that complicated, but here's what you, de- here's what you need to know. At the end of the day... Moses was approaching God in a way that was not in keeping with God's holy nature. I'll say it again. Moses was approaching God in a way that was not in keeping with God's holy nature. And therefore, God had to correct him. Basically, God had to teach Moses the right way to make his approach. This, I think, translates very easily into one of the... uh, The application sort of writes itself... One of the greatest sins of the modern American church 
is that we have failed to teach sinners how to rightly approach a holy God. We have trained people to think that they can approach a holy God in whatever way they please. We've trained people to think that they can approach a holy God in a casual manner. You see it when pastors wear Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts as they preach the word on a Sunday morning. You see it when we as a church start to do these squishy evangelism programs. We're just going to go out and we're just going to say, hey, does not matter? We just want you to know God loves you as if that were the entirety of the story. We train people to think this way when we conduct Sunday morning services that are completely lacking in reverence. When we do these things, we communicate the idea that our holy God can be approached in a willy-nilly fashion. Now, listen, some of you guys have grown up in entirely different contexts. Maybe you grew up in very legalistic churches where all you ever heard about was the holiness of God. It was like the one drum that was being sounded from the pulpit. God is holy, holy, holy. And you, you never heard about God's love. You never heard about God's mercy, His grace, His patience. And so for you, as you hear this, you think, ah, man, that doesn't really resonate with me. I know that I can't approach God in a casual fashion, but sometimes, Sean, I just wonder if I can approach God at all. So here's what's really incredible about this this morning's uh, narrative. When you see this story, you see that it's not either or. It's both and. Because the story begins with God calling Moses to himself. That's grace, right? Moses was not out on the mountaintop looking for God. He was out living his life. He was tending his father-in-law's sheep. But then God called to Moses. He said, come to me. That's grace. But then as Moses makes his approach, God says, listen, part of the grace that I give to you is to let you know that I'm holy. Part of the way that I love you is to let you know that because I am holy, you cannot approach me the way that you might want to approach me. It's both and. It's not either or. This is what we should be doing as a church. We should be telling people, come to Christ, come now, come as you are. But you have to know that even as you are, God is distinct from you. He is different from you. And the way you approach him has to be in keeping with his holy nature, which is why coming to God always begins with repentance. You see this this tension, this both and. It doesn't have to be a tension. It's only a tension in our minds because we're sinful. You see this all throughout the Bible. I'll just give you one other example. It's from the book of Hebrews. Earlier in the book of Hebrews, uh, we are told that Jesus is our sympathetic high priest. Oh, it's incredible. You can come to God. You can come to God through Jesus. Whatever you're going through, whatever sin issues you have, God is patient. He's gracious. He understands. He's sympathetic. This is part of the gospel. It's an indispensable part of the gospel. Yes and amen. Later in the book of Hebrews, we are told that our God is an all-consuming fire. Those two things are not opposing. Those two ideas are complementary in the gospel. But for us, it feels like a tension. So what that means is that we have to be careful not to veer off of the road into one ditch or another. Right? We cannot say that God is so holy that we can never approach him because that is a denial of grace. 
We can also not say, we must not say that God is loving and gracious and patient, therefore I can approach him however I please. No, when we approach God in the ways that we think fitting, the ways that we in our flesh think are appropriate, what we do is we place ourselves in danger. The reason why God warned Moses is because if he approached him wrongly, he would be in danger. And so when we preach the gospel, when we call sinners into the grace of God's gospel, we do not want to lead them into danger. We want to lead them into safety. Which leads me to two pieces of good news I want to share with you right here from the beginning of the sermon. Number one, for the Christian, you do not have to figure out how to approach God in worship. Isn't that amazing? I just, I think about people who have been, and I've been there, I've been in churches where it's like, okay, what are we going to do this Sunday? How are we going to worship God this Sunday? What are we going to do that's going to be new and fresh and exciting and exhilarating? And I just think, you don't have to do that. (laughs) God has always told his people the right way to approach him. It's the way that's safe. It's the way that's good. It's the way that brings us the most joy in the end. God in his word has told us how to approach him. It always begins with repentance. It's followed by faith. As a church, how do we approach God in worship? Do we just make up whatever we want to do on a Sunday morning? No, God has told us. There is room for creativity, yes, but he's told us. We must sing to him. We must listen to him in his word. We must pray to him. We must gather as one body. You don't have to figure out as a Christian how to approach God. He's made a way for you in Christ. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're like, okay, I'm starting to think about the idea of approaching God, but now, Sean, you've kind of scared me. That's, that's, that's the whole point of the gospel is that you don't have to be afraid anymore. You don't have to be nervous about approaching God. God has made a way for you to approach him in safety and the way is Jesus Christ. He suffered so that you don't have to. He made way. We're going to talk about this more in the sermon. I could keep going, but we've got to get to point two. Keep a pin in that idea as we come back to it later in the sermon. Point number two. The God who remembers. So the other day, Amber was going through some stuff in our attic, and uh, not metaphorically, and she found some old videotapes from when we first got married. Apparently, I used to carry around a video camera and record everything all the time. We're 37 now. We were 19 years old in these videos, which means they are really embarrassing. I invite you to come over one evening, we'll pop some popcorn, and we'll all have a good laugh. Now, as we sat and watched these really cringy, embarrassing videos, it all felt um, surreal. You know what it's like when, when you feel like you remember something, but you also don't remember it at all? Right? It feels like a dream. That's, that's kind of what it felt like watching these videos of our younger selves. Now... When God calls Moses to himself at the burning bush, he identifies himself as the I am, Yahweh, the the God who is the eternally existent, infinite, unchanging, self-sustaining creator of the universe. And there's a lot to unpack about the name of God and how edifying was Pastor Will's prayer earlier. That's why I love the prayers that we pray, because I was like, oh man, you just rounded out my sermon so helpfully with like that entire prayer. 
There's a lot to unpack about the name of the God, but the one thing I don't want you to miss, we're going to come back to the name of God later in the book of Exodus. In Exodus 3, though, the one thing that I don't want you to, to miss is the idea that God identifies himself twice. When you see something repeated in a Bible story, pay attention. It's important. Twice in this story, once right after God identifies himself as I am, he describes himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Why is this so significant, this covenant identifying language? You might not have noticed it uh, earlier in our reading, but isn't it strange the timing of when Moses covers his face in fear? Moses is out tending the sheep. He sees a burning bush that's not consumed. That does not cause him to cover his face in fear. Then an angel of the Lord, probably the Lord himself, calls out to Moses and begins a dialogue with him from from within the burning bush that's not consumed, and that does not cause Moses to cover his face in fear. When does Moses cover his face in fear? Only when God identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is what causes God to, uh, Moses to cover his face in fear. Why? Why is that the cue for Moses? What, what causes a visceral reaction in Moses when he hears that language about the nature and character of God? I think it has something to do with Moses' memory. Think with me about Moses' life. We've been studying him for the last several weeks. Think about his life. Think about what you know. He grew up for a time with his mother when he was a baby. But then he was cast into the basket into the river of death. God saved him. God caused the princess to give him back to his mother for a short time so that he could be nursed. How long was he with his mother? We don't know, but probably not very long. That The language there in Exodus chapter 2 seems to be like, you can have him while you're nursing him, but then he comes back to me. And then Moses spent 40 years. I mean, let's just say he nursed until he was two. Right? He basically spent 38 years in the palace of the Pharaoh. And then after that, after Moses had to flee Egypt for his life, and after he went to Midian, verse number 1, verse 1 in this morning's text tells us that Moses married into the family of a pagan priest. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. That's not a Catholic priest. That's a pagan priest. So all in all, it seems like Moses spent 80 years of his life living in the midst of those who did not know Yahweh. Whether in the palace or in the desert, he has been in some sense detached from the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Did he ever stop believing in Yahweh? I don't think so. We don't know. But there's something about the way that Moses responds to God's self-revelation as the God of the covenant of his forefathers that makes it seem like at least his memory had faded. And when God identifies himself, it's surreal. It's like everything that he once knew to be true in, in vivid technicolor that has sort of gone gray sort of comes back to life for him. I agree with Calvin when he writes this. It will not be far from the truth if we suppose that the faith both of Moses and the Israelites had grown somewhat faint 
and rusty. And then Calvin goes on to compare this forgetfulness of Moses to that of a church that once had the gospel but had had forgotten it for a long time. And then the gospel comes back and vivifies the church and everyone goes, oh yeah, that's what it's supposed to be like. You ever been there? If this view is correct, and I, I think it is, I wouldn't be preaching it if I didn't. I think there's an incredible lesson here about the nature and character of God. Our God. Moses may have begun to, forgot God, uh, to forget God, but God had not forgotten Moses. It is possible that Moses had begun to forget the covenant promise of Yahweh, but God could not forget his promises. That's why we started our, ser- our service this morning singing, Our God, He always keeps His promises. If I could write... Uh, If I could add to that hymn, which I can't, I would add a verse, something about how we are always inclined to forget. But there's another hymn that does that, right? Come thou fount, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Prone to forget, Lord, I feel it. Even when I'm in church every Sunday, prone to forget, Lord, I feel it. But even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Even when we begin to forget, he always remembers us. He always remembers his promise. He always remembers himself. God is determined to redeem his people and to use Moses to do it. But first, Moses must be commissioned, which leads us to point three. The shortest point in the sermon, boo. Point three, the God who sins. All right. Here is God's plan for Moses. Laid out in four steps. Step one, Moses, you're going to go to the elders of Israel and you're going to say, the God of our forefathers is going to rescue us from Pharaoh and he is going to deliver us to the promised land. That's step one. Step two, after you get done with the elders of Israel, you're going to go to Pharaoh himself. And you're going to ask for permission essentially to go on a three-day field trip into the wilderness to worship me. Step three, Pharaoh is not going to let you. Duh. When he refuses to grant your request, I am going to unleash havoc on Egypt. Step number four, after my outstretched hand brings the thunder and lightning, so to speak, Pharaoh is going to relent and he is going to let my people go. But before my people go, they must plunder the Egyptians. Pretty good plan, except for the fact that it almost doesn't get off the ground because no less than five times Moses questions God's commission for his life. Five times Moses questions God's commission for his life, which leads us to point four, the God who goes. When you read this story, you find that that Moses has this laundry list of reasons why he can't possibly be the one to redeem Israel he can't possibly be the one to go to Pharaoh reasons like well what if they don't believe me or I don't talk good right but the main objection that I want us to consider because there's a sense in which I think they all kind of flow from this one objection the other objections flow from this one the main objection we're going to consider is seen in verse 10 it's the who am I or who am I objection look at verse 10 
Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So yeah, Moses says, I, I don't know if I'm your guy. I don't know if I'm the one. Now, this is, I, to put it lightly, unreasonable of Moses. You would think that if a guy has an encounter with a miraculous burning bush with the angel of the Lord in it, that you would be pretty open to this like Hollywood-style action-adventure mission that God wants to send you on. But Moses is not open to it. And I'm going to tell you the main reason why. Here's the main reason why. Because he is more focused on himself than on God. Moses is more focused on himself than on God. And here too the application basically writes itself. I see this problem in Christians all of the time. And worst of all I see it in myself all of the time. And here's what it looks like. God calls us to a task that we feel utterly insufficient for, and instead of following God in faith and obeying the task that he's given us, we focus on our weakness. Instead of focusing on God's strength, we focus on our weakness, and in so doing, we, like Moses, totally miss the point. In verse 8, God specifically tells Moses that the plan doesn't depend on him. In verse 8, he says, I have come down to deliver them and and I will raise them up out of Egypt and I will deliver them to the promised land. Right? The emphasis is hearty. God is saying, I'm the one who's doing it. Yes, Moses, I'm going to use you to do it. You're part of my plan, but make no mistake about it. The plan doesn't depend on you, buddy. It depends on me. But Moses misses it. He misses it because he's so focused on himself I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not handsome enough, I'm not holy enough. And then God responds. God responds to Moses' objection. Now, here's the main thing I want you to notice as we look at God's response to Moses is not what God says, but what God doesn't say. God does not say, Come on now, Moses, don't say that. Don't be such a negative Nelly. You're Moses. Huh? You're the the best. You're the brightest. You're the fastest. You're the strongest. You're the most holy. Listen, bud, there's nothing you can't do if you don't just put your mind to it. Huh? Come on now. That's not what he says. What does he say? How does God reassure Moses in his weak, navel-gazing Low self-esteem moment. In verse 12, he says it. Look there. He said, But I will be with you. That is God's answer. I will be with you. God does not point to anything in Moses as a source of encouragement. Think about the way you try to encourage people. Very often when people are down on themselves, you try to find the best things about that person, point it out, point them out, and then say, see, now doesn't that make you feel better? 
And I'm not saying that that's wrong. But when you're called on like this mission for God, when, when you're given a ministry by God, you don't want to point to things that are good in people and say, now, now, buddy, you can do it. God doesn't do that. God doesn't point to anything in Moses. He points to himself. I'm the reason why you can have confidence. I'm the reason why you can do this. Moses does not need self-esteem. He needs to realize that God is sovereign. Now listen, I hope you're amen and for this too. Some of you might be trying to wiggle your way out of a ministry that God has called you to. You're saying, well, you, wait, you're saying I'm like Moses? Yeah, I'm saying you're like Moses. I mean, minus the big beard and living in the ancient Near East and being a shepherd for most of you. God gives all of us ministries. Did you notice the way that Will prayed earlier? He said that we've all been made ambassadors, right? All of us have been in some sense called to take part in this mission that God has given us to take his name to the nations and to see the elect saved. I can keep going, but... We've all been called to this mission. And some of you right now are saying, I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to do it because I can't do it because who am I to do it? And when you do that, you start to list out some of the, some of the reasons why you're not qualified. And what it all amounts to is essentially you saying the same thing that Moses says. Who am I? Who am I to do this? Friends, listen carefully. The very things that you think might be disqualifying you from being used by God could in fact be the very reasons why God has chosen you. The things that make you weak, the things that make you in the eyes of the world not the obvious choice might be the exact reason why God has chosen you. One of Moses' disqualifications is that he's not eloquent. He's not eloquent. He, he can't speak very well. How does God respond? Does God say, well, Moses, first of all, don't say that about yourself, bud. You know, speak, speak positive things over your life. Does he say, uh, you're actually a great communicator? No. Does he say, hey, we'll get you some elocution lessons and we'll get you a speech coach and we'll really get you prepared so that when you go to Pharaoh, you'll feel confident because you're going to be competent. That's not what God says to him. God says in verse 12 of chapter 4, I will be your mouth. That's God's response to I can't speak good. Don't worry about if you can speak good. I didn't call you because you can speak good. And you're thinking, well, Sean, doesn't it speak well? Exactly. I didn't choose you because you can speak well. I chose you so that I could display my power through you. I'm going to be with you. Which is why in chapter 3, verse 18... The Lord can say with no qualifications, complete confidence, they will listen to your voice. Them listening to his voice has nothing to do with his capacity for speech. It has everything to do with God's presence. Now you may be thinking, well, Sean, how does this apply to me? Like in what way? Like what? Think about, let's just stay with speech. Think about how many speaking ministries God has called you to, not even as a pastor or a missionary or a full-time evangelist, but just as an ordinary church member. Discipleship is something that every Christian is called to, and discipleship, although it is lived out, it, is, it must begin with speech. Discipleship is something that we do with our friendships in the church. 
It's something that you're called to in parenting. Whenever there's biblical counseling things in the church and we have to counsel one another in, in the word, right? With, even with evangelism, we can just keep going. There are all these ministries that you're called to in the church that involve your speech, that require you to communicate with people. And you're probably sitting there going, I, I just can't do it. It can't be me. When you think like that, you are repeating the sin of Moses. Let's take evangelism for an example. Some of us are afraid to evangelize because we are not so great with the words. Friends, you have to understand that God does not need your eloquence. He wants your faithfulness. If you are willing to, in an awkward, fumbly way, speak the gospel to someone who needs to hear it, God promises to be with you as you speak. He promises to teach you what to say. He promises that the the seed of the gospel that you speak will be empowered by the life that only he can give to your speech. You can't do evangelism because you're too focused on yourself. Stop looking at yourself so much. Stop navel-gazing. Stop analyzing yourself. It's crippling. It's crippling. Instead, focus on God. Focus on His promises. In Acts chapter 4, we see this really incredible story. I love the way Luke narrates it. Peter and John have been preaching, and the people that Peter and John are preaching to recognize something about them as they listen to Peter and John preach. Listen. Now when they, the crowd, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. You see that? There's nothing about God's presence with the apostles that took away the earthly fact that they were, in fact, uneducated common men. It's not like the Holy Spirit came and, you know, they start talking like an Oxford professor. You know, they're from the hood. You know, they're, they're the fisherman hood, right? But, you know, like, they, these are not dudes who know how to use four-syllable words. It doesn't matter. They're commoners. It doesn't matter. In the ancient world, people valued education. Well, I guess not just in the ancient world, right? We're only going to listen to people who sound learned, who don't sound like commoners. But they did. And people were blown away. Their ministry was effective. Why was it effective? It says they could tell that they had been with Jesus. When you've been with Jesus, when you have a relationship with the Lord, you just stop focusing on yourself. How can you focus on yourself if you're with Jesus? When I'm with my wife, it's really hard to focus on me, except for when I'm deep in sin. Right? But usually I'm just like so enraptured with her beauty and her glory, I want to focus on her. Now take that and increase it times a jillion. When you're with Christ, you just want to focus on Christ. You don't focus on yourself. And then what does that do? That empowers you and you go out and you minister with boldness. Listen to me. You cannot focus on yourself and be bold at the same time. A couple weeks ago, I listened to one of my own sermons, which I almost never do. I listened to it to try and improve an aspect of my preaching that I had noticed that was a problem. People had pointed it out to me. All right, let's fix, fix this. Let me listen to this sermon. Let me hear it. 
it was a truly miserable experience. I mean, wow. Have you ever heard yourself speak? Like when you hear yourself on a voicemail or something, isn't that just the worst? Some of you have a voice for radio, but for me, it was terrible. And as I was listening to myself preach, I just kept thinking, gosh, why does anyone want to listen to me preach the Bible? <laughs> you know, Why does anybody want to listen to me talk for an hour every week? Which is just another version of who am I, that the Lord should use me. Now let me tell you something even more embarrassing. Secretly, I hope that one day I'm going to find out that all the things that I dislike about my public speaking actually turned out to not be true at all. All those little things that I hate, maybe God or maybe I'll look back and be like, you know, oh wow, those were actually my greatest strengths. I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> I think what's probably going to happen is I'm going to look back on my preaching ministry and I'm going to say, huh, all those things really were true. I really wasn't the best in these ways, but the Lord was still kind and gracious to use my meager efforts. Here's the point. I could focus on everything that I do not like about my speaking ministry and that would cripple me and I would probably never get up in front of the pulpit again I would never teach Wednesday night Bible studies I would never teach Sunday school I would just be so focused on me that I would be utterly useless that is the place where some of you are mentally and spiritually you are so focused on yourself that you're not willing to do the things that God has called you to do someone in this church needs to be counseled by you someone in your life needs you to share the gospel with them. Some discipleship needs to take place. God is calling you to do it and you're not doing it because you cannot stop focusing on yourself. Stop it. Focus on God. Look at him. Believe his promises and watch what he can do through your life. <clears throat> you are not here this morning to get more self-esteem. You are here to believe the promise that God uses even sinners and screw-ups like us. So let me say this as clearly as I can, okay? You are not special. You are not enough. But God is. He is special. He is enough. He has promised to be with you. Now, a few thousand years after Moses, there was another man who was commissioned by God to lead God's people into a redemption of sorts. His name was the Apostle Paul. He too was not a strong speaker. The Apostle Paul was great in letters, but in person he was so rhetorically weak that many of his critics were saying, there's no way this guy could be an apostle. Just listen to him try to speak publicly. And when Paul responded to his critics, there's no doubt in my mind that this story was at the forefront of his mind. You know what he says to his critics? He says this in 1 Corinthians, Christ did not send me to preach an eloquent gospel, but a gospel of power. And true power is seen in God's presence through my weakness. That's me kind of pushing like six or seven verses together. But that's what Paul said. God's power is not seen through my eloquence in preaching. God's power is seen in my weakness. You're telling me that as people were attacking Paul's ministry for saying he wasn't eloquent enough, that Paul the Pharisee wasn't thinking back on this story of Moses who was saying he could never be used by God because he wasn't eloquent enough? Of course that's what he was thinking. 
Now, what made Moses' ministry powerful? It was God with him. What made Paul's ministry powerful? It was God with him. What made the ministries of Charles Spurgeon and Amy Carmichael and Athanasius powerful? It was the fact that God was with them. If you want to have real power in your day-to-day Christian ministry, the only way for you to have that is for God to be with you. And that is one of the great promises of the gospel, is that he is with you. And he is with you in a way that he was not with Moses. Because one of the promises of the gospel on this side of the cross is that God is not merely with us, he's in us. Right? We don't have a pillar of a cloud by day and fire by night. We don't have a tabernacle in our midst. We have the Holy Spirit of God living in us. This is why one of the, one of the last things that Jesus said to his disciples before he left was he says, I'm sending my comforter. It's good that I, it's good that I go because I'm sending you someone better. Oh, by the way, when you're worried about getting, getting called before kings and governors and councils and you're worried about what you're going to say in the moment, don't worry about what you're going to say because I will teach you what to say. How is he going to teach them what to say? Through his Holy Spirit living in them. That was the promise for the disciples and it's also a promise for you. So stop thinking so much about yourself and start thinking more about the Holy Spirit living in you and watch what happens to your ministry. Point number five, the God who is patient. In C.S. Lewis's spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy, Lewis describes himself as the most reluctant convert ever. Well, with all due respect to Mr. Lewis, uh, I think Moses probably deserves that title. The maybe the Apostle Paul, but Moses, I mean, this, this whole story, this morning's story is, is about how God calls Moses and how Moses tries to refuse. He is stubborn, he's insecure, he's fearful, he's lacking in faith, but even all of those things cannot keep God from using him for his own divine purposes. So as I draw our sermon to a close, I want to draw your attention to one final attribute of God that we see in this text, and that's namely the attribute of God's patience. Now, when you read this account, you see that Moses over and over and over again tries to to wiggle his way out of serving the Lord until finally in chapter, uh, excuse me, in verse 14, God's anger is kindled against Moses. Look there at verse 14. I think it's, sorry, chapter 4, verse 14. This is starting in 13. Moses is kind of out of, uh, he's out of excuses at this point, so he just resorts to begging. But he said, oh my Lord, please, please send someone else. And then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. You can keep reading. It says, and he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. There's a whole lot to unpack there. This brotherly reunion out of nowhere after who knows how many years now when you read through the story the most prominent attribute of God in your mind might be the attribute of his anger because it's what comes kind of right at the end of the story but I think if the if the thing that sticks out most to you about the story is the anger of God you've kind of missed it Because this entire story, God has been displaying his patience towards Moses. 
right? Moses says, who am I to go? And God says, don't worry, I'll be with you. And Moses goes, okay, well, who should I tell them sent me? And God says, well, here's my name. You can tell them. It's a, it's a powerful name. And Moses says, okay, but what if they don't believe me? And God says, don't worry, I'll work my signs and wonders in your midst. And when I do, they'll know that I really sent you. And Moses goes, okay, okay, okay. And he's probably like trying to, what else is there? Ah, I'm not eloquent. I'm not a good speaker. Can't send me, Lord. And God says, don't worry. I'll speak through you. Patience, 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 patience. But one of the main things we learn in this passage is that eventually God's patience does give way to wrath. His patience can give way to anger. And so as, as, as we close, I want you to see two things. When God's patience gives way to wrath, when, when it gives way to anger, there are two possible outcomes. The first is discipline. Discipline. For the believer, whenever we test God, whenever we try God, whenever we try to exert our will over God's will, which is exactly what Moses does in this morning's text, God is very patient with us, but we should not expect that to mean that God's patience will not run thin and that God will not eventually be angry with us. But here's one of the great comforts of the gospel. When God is angry with us, he's angry with us as a loving father, angry towards a disobedient child. Not as a a king would be angry against enemies of his kingdom. And so what that means is that he disciplines us, he corrects us, he, he forms us, he shapes us. That anger always has a good outcome for us. It's in fact one of the signs that we are actually legitimate and not illegitimate children of God. Even in verse 14, in the same breath that we're told that God becomes angry with Moses, we're also told that God accommodates Moses. God's like, all right, there's Aaron. I'll send Aaron with you. Now, see, the problem with that representation there is that it's so human, right? But God's not like a father who's really frustrated with his son. And he's like, fine, whatever it takes, we'll just so we can get this done and get on the road. You know, that's not what God is like. But it's the closest as, it's, it's as close as we can get to understanding what God is like. A father and a son, he's angry, but even in his anger, he's patient. But God's anger does not always lead to discipline. It's really the terrible news of the gospel that God's anger often leads to destruction. It is one of the great and terrible promises of the gospel of God that if you are not in Christ if you have not turned away from your sin, if you have not trusted in him, eventually his patience with you will wear thin. If you wonder, why has not God just taken me out for my sin? I know I deserve it. Why hasn't he taken me out? It's because he's patient. It's because he's loving. But if you think you can just push and push and push and push and test and test and test and test, you're wrong. You have another thing coming. In, in the book of 2 Peter, we read this about the Lord's patience leading to anger. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but which is like, you wonder why God hasn't come back and destroyed all the evil in the world, which would include you if you haven't repented, and me as well. Well, he doesn't because God is patient towards us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
Incredible. But Peter goes on, he says, But the day of the Lord, which is the day of judgment, the day of destruction, the day of wrath, the day of anger, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. You know what it means that it comes like a thief? It's going to come on you suddenly. You're going to be testing and testing and testing and pushing and pushing and pushing. And you're going to think there's always tomorrow. There's always tomorrow. And then there won't be a tomorrow. The day is going to come like a thief in the night. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You are in this room this morning if you do not trust in Christ. Because God wants you to know that he has been patient with you. But his patience will not last forever. But his wrath will. So he's calling you today, even today, to turn away from your sin, to stop testing him and to start trusting him. And if you do, God will use you in ways you can't even begin to imagine. So I pray that you'll do just that. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning humbled by the reality that it is only by your grace we have trusted in you and stopped testing you. We pray that you will help us to live in light of that grace. We pray that you will help us to remember that you are so good to us, Father, that we are like Moses at our at our worst, we are like Moses, always talking back to you, always trying to turn away from you, but your covenant promises never fail us. Your love will never leave us to our own will. So we rejoice and we respond to you now in faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.